Let's get right into it this morning. You have a scripture sheet that I trust that you picked up, and it'll help you be a, as a listening guide. So with your, with your hand there on chapter 6 and verse number 60, uh, we'll read that in a moment. But first, let me just say a couple of things. I want to talk this morning about heart revelations, and I have in parentheses, your walk talks. I have a little ditty that I say that you've heard me say from the pulpit before, and I'll remind you of it, and that is this, is that your talk talks, and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Got that? Uh, if that what, that's one of those things that gets, makes you get your tang tangled and your merge witched, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, yeah, so uh, your, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. What are you saying, Pastor Phil? What we do and when we're, where we walk says a lot about what's in our heart, and we're going to find that out in this passage today. I read this, he who thinks he is leading but has no one following is only taking a walk. Not sure who said that, but it's quite true. Some people think they're leaders, but they find that it was only a paycheck that got anybody to listen to them at all. Uh, somebody that we read in J-Men quite often is a guy named John Maxwell. He's a leadership guru and a Christian. Uh, he says leadership is influence. Well, I think that's true, but I've got to add something to it. I think leadership is inspiring influence that leads people to a place that honors God and is good for his followers. It's good for us to follow Jesus and we lead with inspiring influence. Now, Jesus has many followers today as he did in the days that he walked the planet. Some were true followers and some were not. Some followed for what they could get. Uh, healing, food, miracles. They, he was putting the best show on earth on at that time. And so people were following him for that. And then others. Others followed him because of who he was. And also what he promised, who he was. Well, he was God come in the flesh. Uh, it's, been, it's been the pounding truth that we have seen over and over throughout this passage. Uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so some, they believed him because he was God and then also because of what he had promised. And what was the promise that he made? Well, it's, it's the glorious promise of eternal life, everlasting life. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, one of those anchors for me, is 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25. And it says this, it says, and this is the promise that he promised us, even eternal life. You want a promise from God to hang on to? Hang on to that one. This is the promise that he promised us, even eternal life. Life. Well, today's passage ends the long discourse on the bread of life. And as he ended the discourse, we find that many people walked away and they followed him no more. The Bible says this, it says many, I think it's safe to say that most walked away because when he looked up, there were only the 12 and perhaps some of those servants standing there with him. It is interesting to me that Jesus said things on many occasions that seemed to push people away. It was almost counterintuitive. You'd think if he was trying to build a crowd, he would have said things different. But he would often look at the size of the crowd and say, this isn't real. And he would say things that would make them think. He said things that way. I, I almost named this sermon, Thinning the Herd. But I got afraid to do that because I was sure somebody would come up and say, Pastor, are you calling us cows? So I, I didn't do that. 
So it is true that Jesus on more than one occasion said the opposite of what one would think he would say if his intention was just building the crowds. Listen to this in Luke chapter 4. It begins in verse 25 and follows after that. But it says in Luke chapter 14, excuse me, not 4, but Luke 14 verse 26. This is what Jesus said to a large crowd that was following him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever of you that does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You talk about thinning the herd. That's exactly what happened on that occasion. Well, it seems the same here. The crowds had come to see the miracles, to be healed of their diseases, and most of all, to get free food. Uh, they, Jesus had demonstrated his power. He had demonstrated his authority. He declared his divine nature. But the crowds, they wanted food. They wanted provisions. They wanted to el- him to eliminate illness. And they wanted him to be their king who took care of those kinds of things. Don't forget the context. He fed 5,000 with a sack lunch. He secretly exited that meeting walking on the water to the disciples in the midst of a storm where he calmed the storm and brought them to port. The crowds, knowing all of this, chased him down to Capernaum. In verse number 26, they said, we want more bread. Jesus told them, you didn't chase me for the miracles or for my message. You chased me because you want bread. And so he told them that bread that they were seeking would never last. And he told them that they needed him, the true bread. This whole discourse from about verse 22 to the end of the chapter is where Jesus is saying, I fed you physical bread and you were satisfied, but it's only temporary. You need me. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Pastor Andrew did a wonderful job pointing out last week that the big idea of the context is that only Jesus can sustain us in this life and the next. In my devotions this morning, I read this passage that says, I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. Folks, just prepare yourself. No matter what you think on earth, nothing's ever going to completely satisfy you until you're in his presence. When we're in his presence and we're like him, finally, that's when satisfaction and contentment are really going to arrive. And so, uh, but here's the story. They followed him there. Uh, they, he wanted to give them something that they really didn't want. They wanted their earthly and temporal needs all met. They had no interest in their spiritual needs, nor did they want to talk about him coming down from God, going back to God, and this giving his body and blood to eat and drink. What is that? Sounds like cannibalism. It was too much. He didn't want to give them continual provisions. And so they said, he doesn't want to give us what we need. We're out of here. We're going somewhere else. And they walked away. Let's see how it is stated in the scriptures. As we stand together and read verses 60 through 71, the words will be on the screen. Let's read this passage together. We do this to honor the Lord, to see it with our eyes, to pronounce it with our mouth, to hear it with our ears, and to triple a triple entrance of God's word into our heart. And so let's begin now. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter, answering him, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. And our Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word. As we have gone through this chapter 6 of the book of John, this clarification and subject of a soul's salvation has come to the surface and has been loudly pronounced over and over. And so, Father, I pray that as we examine ourselves today to find out if we're truly in the faith, I pray that you would make a great revelation to us because our heart, that's your area of work. Only you work in the hearts of men. I pray, Father, that you would work in men and women and boys and girls and young people and everyone here today. And I pray, Father, you would reveal to us where we are spiritually. And then as well, Lord, I pray that you would lay your hand on us to call us to your work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. It seems in John chapter 6 that Jesus is doing the opposite of what we would do today. I mean, we are always trying to find some sort of successful enlargement campaign, try to build the crowd. Jesus seemed to be running a successful ensmallment campaign. He started in John 6 with 5,000 men plus their families. He ended in chapter 6 with 12. One of them was a fake and a few of the servants that traveled in their traveling itinerant team. Well, friends, today we're living in an hour when many are walking away from the things of the Lord. It should not surprise us that many are. Barna, in all of his research, says that one of the growing and the most notable parts of our population in the United States are the nuns, and I don't mean Catholic individuals. What I mean is people who mark down no religion, none, non-affiliated, not interested, none. That's so... Amazing. Well, the Bible forecast these days, we're told in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, that in the last days there would be a great falling away, a walking away. It also says in 2 Timothy 3, 5, that in the end times that there will be many who have some form of godliness, some religiosity about them, but they would deny the power. I have to tell you that there are congregations of people all over the states today where Jesus really is not invited and he's not welcome. The Bible is clear in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, that the characteristics of the Laodicean church was that he would be on the outside knocking on the door saying, I'd be glad to come in and fellowship, but I'm on the outside. But if any one person will open up, I'll come into them and I will fellowship with them and they can fellowship with me. So let's ask this question this morning. Why do people walk away? Why do they walk away? 
Well, I want to preface everything that I'm saying with this statement this morning. Many of us have it in our habit to assume that once somebody has made some sort of decision or made some sort of profession or has been baptized or something, we hit in our mind that, well, that's it. That's the line of demarcation. So no matter what happens in the future, everything's great. Well, the truth is, is that that public profession of something like that is not a guarantee that that person truly believes in their heart. There's only one person on the planet who knows what a person believes in their heart, and that's God. God sees us and he knows. This is so incredibly important. I'm approached time and time and time again by parents saying, pray for Billy or Susie, because when they were young and they were nine, they made a profession of faith. They even got baptized. But you know, they won't go to church. They won't come to church. They won't be a part of, they don't want to hear it. They laugh at us. They mock us. They mock everything we do and they have nothing to do with it. But I know that they really trusted the Lord and one day they'll come. It's been 40 years, but I know that they'll come back. Listen carefully to the teaching of this passage today. It is so very, very important. Now, first of all, not everybody can handle the truth. That's uh, very obvious from this passage. And I can't help but remember Jack Nicholson. Uh, There was an epic movie a few years ago called A Few Good Men. How many will confess along with me that you actually saw that movie, A Few Good Men? Well, he was under questions under oath. Uh, it was being a severe moment in the movie, and he was being questioned about this, that, or the other, about the truth. And he made that famous statement, you can't handle the truth. Well, um, the truth is that there's a lot of people cannot handle the truth of God. And these verses, we find that though not everybody walks away from Jesus, the truth is this, most do. Doubt, suspicion, hostility are mounting against Jesus in this passage. And these people who recently wanted to make him king after he fed them, that was verse 15. Now they want nothing more to do with him because now they've heard his message. They liked the free lunch. They liked the display of miracles, but they didn't like him. And what changed? What made them not willing to follow him anymore? Well, Jesus told them the truth and they couldn't handle the truth. What did he say to them? Well, let me give you some things quickly. First, he made some bold claims. You don't have this on their sheet and you probably don't need to write them down. I'm going too quickly. But verse 29, he claimed this, that he was the way of salvation. In verse 32, he claimed that he was the son of God. In verse 35, he claimed to be superior to Moses and that his bread that he was giving was greater than manna. That really riled them. He claimed to come from heaven and he's going to return there. In verse 62, he turned it around. He says, now he's here and he's going to return up there. He claimed this in verses 35 to 40 and 63. He claimed that salvation was a matter of faith alone. This verse is so powerful. It is the spirit that gives life. His word gives life. Just like in the beginning, when God said, word, God said, let there be light and life and trees and animals. He said it and it was done. In his word is life. His word is spirit. And then finally, he claimed that apart from God drawing them, they could not believe. This angered them so very, very much. He made some clear distinctions about them. And these are the, this is the distinction. He said, basically, there are only two possible reactions to the revelation of the truth. People either receive it or they reject it. They receive the truth or they reject the truth. 
The Bible says in Luke eleven twenty three 23, so clearly that Jesus draws a line on the ground and says, he that is not with me is against me, and he who doesn't gather with me scatters. So he draws a line on the ground and says, you're either for me or you're against me. You believe me or you reject me. You have me in your life or you do not. There is no middle ground. There's no such thing as sitting on the side and looking at the two sides of it and making a contemplation. No. We already studied in John chapter 3, very clearly, he that believeth not is condemned when? Already. We're born in unbelief. We have to come to believe. There's two groups of people in the world. There are believers and unbelievers. There are lost people and saved people. There's a group trying to work their way to heaven by rule keeping. And there's a, per, there's a group of people who receive it by grace. It is the religion of Cain where he offered his best to God or the religion of Abel where he came by a blood sacrifice. Folks, it's the way of Jesus or it is not at all. Jesus is the truth. He is the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. Now, the truth is this. You can talk about God all you want in this world and people won't get offended. But if you start naming that God and talking about what Jesus did for mankind, then things get a little bit more difficult because people don't want to be told that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, what does that mean about people that have never, ever heard? Well, it means that we need to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That's what the Bible says over and over again. So we need to go to the gospel, go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, drawing people from every nation, tribe, and language. So some people receive the truth, but most people reject the truth. Now, here's some reasons for that. On your sheet, write them down as I go through quickly. One, some people just misunderstand the truth. They just misunderstand it. For instance, Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about gynecology. But he was talking about the new birth. The woman at the well thought Jesus was talking about plumbing. But he was talking about he himself as the water of life. The man at the pool of Bethesda thought he was talking about a rescue mission. When he was talking about being the answer to his, to his, uh, to his lack. And so this trend continues today. People try religion. They try baptism. They try turning over a new leaf. But they stop short of something that is the most essential. Of trusting Jesus and trusting Jesus alone. The word of God is offensive to so many people. They misunderstand the truth. And as a result, they reject the truth. Now, some people are opposed to the truth. Write that down. Jesus revealed himself and his demands in this passage. Uh, Jesus, the Jews were in constant and increasing opposition of everything he said. Specifically, verses 41 and 42 and 52 and 60. These Jews were not able to accept his deity, his impending death or his claims about lordship. And they opposed him at every turn. And so it is today. Many are opposed to the truths of the Bible and the claims of the Lord Jesus. The idea that their sin separates them from God is offensive to them. What do you mean I need a Savior? Well, the Bible is very clear about that. In the book of Isaiah, it says, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be safe, for I am God and there is no other. It's so clear. I mean, the subject of salvation permeates the Bible. We're lost and we need to be saved. We're drowning in an ocean of sin and debt. We are drowning and God throws us a lifesaver and his name is Jesus. We're either saved or we're lost and salvation permeates the word of God. Friends, this is so true. The claims of the gospel, the cross, and the blood of Jesus are offensive at first. I want to say this very, very clearly so that you understand it. The gospel can never save you 
until it condemns you. Because it doesn't just start with God loves everybody. He wants to save everybody. Anybody who wants to come can. We need to understand why we need to be saved. Why are we lost? Why was it necessary for the, third, the second person of the Trinity to take human flesh, come to earth, and die a physical death on the cross and be raised again the third day? Why was that necessary? Well, because of sin. We are sinners. We are offenders. We've transgressed. We've missed the mark. We don't measure up. We've declared war on God by our sin. He said, well, I've never done that. You don't have to know that you've done that. You've done that and you were born in opposition to God. Because we inherited from Adam, Romans 5, 12. We are sinners and sin is an offense to God. So the gospel can never save you until it condemns you. And the gospel can never heal you until it hurts you. So it's an offensive thing. Some people stop right there. That's it. Give me that kind of message. You're not going to talk to me like that. I'm out of here. I don't want to hear that message. Let me work my way to heaven. Don't take my pride away from me. I've worked hard. Don't tell me I have to be accountable to God. Some people are blind to the truth. That's the next one. All the way through the passage, the Jews had this approach to Jesus. They said, now, you show us something and we'll believe. I really talked about it a couple of weeks ago in the sermon called Prove It. Show us something and we'll believe. Well, they had seen. They saw him feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And they had already surmised and understood by testimony that he had miraculously walked across the lake, calmed the storm, and brought them to port. They were blind to who he was and what he was doing. When he made his claims and issues and his call to commitment, they were unable to see the truth because they were blind to the truth. And the fact is, is that everybody on the planet is blind to the truth until their eyes are supernaturally opened by the intervention of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and following. If our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world, Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. They are blinded. Some people can't, they can't understand it. Other people are opposed to it. Some people are just flat out blind to the truth. Acts 26 is a great missionary verse. It says, this is the promise that the Holy Spirit gave to the apostle Paul. And he said, Paul, I'm going to deliver you from the Jewish people who are attacking you, as well as from the Gentiles who, who don't know anything about your God, to whom I now send you. So it is to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they can receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let me just stop right here and just say this for a moment. We can't miss this missionary thought that comes here, this missionary idea of the world being in darkness and not being in the light. I read this week about David Livingstone, and here's what it says uh, that was his call uh, to missions. It was in 1840 that David Livingston, by the way, David Livingston, it is said, walked over 29,000 miles across back and crisscrossing the continent of Africa to carry the gospel to people and to do medical. He was a medical missionary and he shared the gospel from one end of the continent to the other. It was in 1840 that David Livingston heard missionary Robert Moffat say, In the vast plain to the north, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary or gospel has ever arrived. They must hear the gospel. 
There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. I have a question for you this morning. Do you think it's incumbent upon us to do everything we can to send the light, to turn on the light, to bring them out of darkness into light from the power of Satan to the power of God? Is it incumbent upon us as a church to want to do that, yes or no? It is so important. Sometimes we miss the mission. We don't understand it. For those of you interested in late June, early July, I'm going to make one more trek in the Andes regions of South America where we want to take the Bible where the road doesn't go into the dark places. And it's been an amazing thing. And if you're interested, you can do that. I want to stop and say, who's going to respond to this fact? Who is moved by the fact that according to the perspectives ministry that we've been reading about and, 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 and uh, going to their classes, 40% of the world is in the grip of Satan's darkness. And we need to turn on the light. Who's going to go and turn on the light? I just have to ask this question. I mean, is this not a sending location? Is this, is this, are we measuring our church by our seating capacity or are we measuring our church by its sending capacity? Are we interested in sending people to the ends of the earth? You see, Africa's dark and China is dark and Japan is dark and Europe is dark. And oh, don't forget, the United States is getting darker all the time. We need to send people. Who's going to go and turn on the light? Young people, you're wondering what God wants you to do with life. You've been saved. You want to be yielded. You're fit. You're mobile. Well, how about God using you, making yourself available? Well, I just, you know, I don't want to go out and raise all that money. Well, how about taking the skills that you have and going to another place in the world where the light's not on and using your skills to work, but spreading the gospel while you live there? Oh, my goodness. Taking the gospel. Some people then also just want the experience, but not the expectation. What's that about, Pastor? Well, these people were following Jesus because he satisfied their fleshly appetites. That's verses 1 through 15. They wanted more of the same. Verse 34. In fact, they wanted Jesus to prove it, that he was greater than Moses and his bread was greater. That was 22 to 31. They were looking for something that satisfied their flesh that made them feel good about themselves. They wanted an experience. They wanted to be following the next king. They wanted to get on the bandwagon. They wanted the miracles and they wanted the sensational. But when Jesus began talking about his expectations and issued a call for commitment, they turned away from him. They walked away. Why? They wanted exciting things. They wanted an exciting moment, but they wanted no commitment. And I have to tell you, today in the ministry, after all of these years, it's been my observation that many want salvation but not surrender. They want a Lord but no Lordship. The same mentality is developed in many churches where the, today the people want religious experiences but without expectations. They want to serve God for what they can get out of it without any concern for His glory or for His will. They want entertainment and excitement without commitment that comes along with the proclamation of the truth. Now, let me just tell you the truth. If you want to fill up a church, then offer cheap grace. Offer salvation without sanctification, doctrine without duty, and a destiny in heaven without living as a disciple while you're here on earth. I have something that I'm wondering about. I'm wondering as time goes on and as government continues to adapt to, it, to the culture, I wonder how many will abandon the faith because the cost is too high. Why? Because the government is beginning to make demands of allegiance to them that takes priority over our allegiance to God and to the faith. Would you like to hear that again? Make sure you get this. I wonder how many will abandon the faith because the cost is too high. 
Because government demands allegiances that are taking priority over the allegiance to our God and our faith. Not everyone can handle the truth. Sometimes the truth is tough. Sometimes the truth makes demands upon our lives. But the truth is always true. The truth is always right. It's always perfect. And Jesus is the truth. Secondly and quickly this morning, not everybody lives in a glass house. Excuse me. Everyone lives in a glass house. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that God can see through everyone. You know, we can fool each other. We can pretend. We can make each other believe we're really believers. But God can see through everything. Our deeds and our thoughts are not hidden from God. How about Hebrews 4.13? What a powerful verse. Hebrews 4.13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That part about giving an account is the biggest objection of most rejectors, most atheists, most agnostics. Idea about giving an account. Well, everybody lives in a glass house to God because he knows who truly believes. You know that, right? He knows whether you really believe. Now, you're trying to convince other people, parents, relatives that you're a believer, but you really don't believe. Well, God knows. He knows whether you truly believe in him, if trust in him. Chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, Jesus said there were many that believed in him on a certain day, but he didn't believe in them. He didn't commit himself to him because he knew what was in man. He knew that they were there for cause and not for faith. So important. He knows who pretends to believe. Look at verse number 64 in the passage. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. In this passage, we see the truth that why the multitudes were following him. They were following him for what they could get, but he knew the deep secrets of their hearts, of those who appeared to be the most committed, the most committed that even fooled all of his fellow disciples was Judas. Judas even convinced the other 11, that he was real, but he was not real. Jesus knows the motives of those who profess to believe but don't possess salvation. When the Lord looks at your life, what does he see? Does he see absolute commitment to the faith? Or does he see a life that wants experiences but no commitment? Nothing and no one is hidden from his all-seeing gaze. You know, Zacchaeus was in the tree, but Jesus knew all about him. Jesus knew all about what was in the heart of Peter by the Roman fire. And he even knew the heart of these hypocritical Pharisees and Jews. And not even Judas Iscariot, who was numbered with the twelve, not even he could deceive Jesus. God sees and he knows everything. Letter D is something else we don't know who truly believes. This is very important for you to understand. We don't know who truly believes. There's only one person in this room today that I have any confidence about their, that I have any full knowledge and confidence about their spiritual condition. And who is that person? It's me. I know what I believe and I know what I have committed to him against that day. And I am convinced that he that began a good work in me will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I have called on the name of the Lord Jesus and I am saved. I believe it. It's in my heart. It's rooted in me. I believe it, but I don't know about you. You don't know about each other. Only God can see right straight through the smoke screens and he can see what's going on. He said, Pastor Phil, you're preaching to us like we're all lost. I'm preaching to you because the Bible says this, let a man examine himself to see if he be in the faith. Well, you're just preaching, trying to cast doubt in everybody's mind. No, I'm not. I'm doing the opposite. I'm telling you what the Bible, what Paul told in Corinthians, let a man examine himself to see if he be in the faith. 
We don't know. I can't see into your heart. You can't see into mine. But God sees us just as we are. What does he see when he looks at you? Friends, we can deceive each other, but we'll never deceive God. We can fool people, but we can live behind those smoke screens of personal performance. And we can put on quite a show for our fellow man. We can fit into church life. We can learn the jargon of the faith, but there are no excuses. We either truly trust Jesus or we trust ourselves. So important. Finally and quickly, genuine faith. And boy, this is something I hope that you would just go home with. Genuine faith will not, cannot walk away. Look at verse number 67. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? The rest of the crowd that was there, he says, but eat his, eat his body, drink his blood, love him more than anything, total loyalty. Are you kidding? We didn't sign up for this. We, we want the food. We want the provisions. We want this wonderful show of miracles. They didn't get it. And so Jesus asked his disciples, as, as this crowd, the masses walked away, will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we also have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Genuine faith cannot walk away. This is the perseverance of the saints. That's one of the wonderful cardinal doctrines of the faith is that saints do persevere. This is the perseverance of the saints. Folks, saved people do not walk away. They're new people. They have new life. They're part of a new community. They're living with a new purpose. They're headed for a new destination. Peter spoke for the whole group. He said he expresses their total commitment, states the fact that they know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he is the way of eternal life because Peter had placed his own faith in Jesus and in his word. Peter was made partaker of two great possessions. And what are they? Well, this is the profession of the saints. One, two great possessions. And the first one is faith. He says it there in verse number 68. You have the words of life and we believe. Lord, we have believed. It's an inward conviction that Jesus is who he claims to be. He says you have the words of eternal life. Verse number 68. Peter made this necessary connection between the words of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And let me just say this this morning. You can't receive Jesus and reject his word. And you can't receive his word and reject his person. To receive Jesus is to receive everything he says. To reject his word is to reject him. If we have Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we receive what he says about himself and about the future and about the truth. We receive him. And so this is what we do. We receive Christ, and that is to receive his word, and his word is to receive him. And then there's this word experience. So it's faith and experience. Well, Pastor, we, experience doesn't guarantee anything. Yeah, but it gives a lot of evidence. I want you to see this. This is very important. He says, and we have come to know. What do you mean we've come to know? Well, we've come to know that you are the son of God. Why? We've been watching some people have seen you turn water into wine and didn't think anything of it. Other people saw you walk on the water and thought, big deal. Other people loved the food, but they didn't want the master. We saw it. We know. We have experienced. You are the son of God. We believe and we are living proof that you're real because you've changed us forever. They were changed. There was an experience. Peter had moments in his life of weakness and failure, but he didn't stay away. He did not walk away forever. Folks, let me give you a great definition of a true Christian. Here it is. A great definition of a true Christian is one who cannot and does not walk away. This, then, is the sad position of the unsaved. What is the alternative? To whom shall we go? 
Peter asking that question. To whom shall we go? I supply some thoughts. Atheism. It offers no hope at death's door. Materialism. Uh, It's all the materials of life stay here. We carry nothing with us. Religion. Religion calls for a list of do's and don'ts, a life of performance, a rule book that nobody can keep, not even the Jews that wrote it. Science, which is knowledge, carries us no further than the textbook, and they keep rewriting the textbooks. What are we to think of those people then who walk away? What of those who choose the way of the flesh over the way of faith? What of those who willingly reject the truth in favor of the lie? I think the Bible has an answer for that. First John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, folks, that's not a person leaving one church, going to another. This is the person that walks away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the person that says, I, I've heard it. I've seen it. It's like Hebrews chapter 6. I've tasted. I've seen. I've experienced. I've done all of this, but I don't want any part of it. I'm done with it. I'm, I'm out of here. When they walk away. They've manifested that they never believed. We are to love them. We are to warn them. We are to pray for them. We are to pray that God would give faith and grace and change them. But we can't change them. Titus chapter 3 and verse number 10. Pastor, what about the pretenders among us? What are we supposed to do with this? You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Pretenders? You think we have pretenders? We have a group of people. No doubt some are pretending. Pretenders. I heard one of my favorite preachers say one day, um, toward the end of his ministry, it's Dr. Adrian Rogers, who was the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, having preached for 25 straight years in that, it, more than 25 years, I think it was like 33 by the time he finished, he says, I'm coming to the end of my time here. My greatest worry as the pastor of this church is to look across this congregation and see great numbers of people who still have never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because somehow they think they're working their way into God's good favor. But salvation is by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. Salvation is believing, trusting, entrusting everything to Jesus. So incredibly important. This astounding truth of pretenders, the idea of of, of um, tares among the wheat. It ranks right up there with me and why God allowed Satan in the Garden of Eden in the first place. And why was there a forbidden tree of knowledge in the garden? And why doesn't God just kill Satan now since he causes so many problems? And why did the Lord Jesus allow a pretender, a money monger, and a false believer who was a traitor to be among the twelve? Sometimes I just don't understand. Jesus did not expose him, though he knew him from the beginning, the verse says. One thing is certain, Judas had his opportunity, and so do you. On purpose in the book of John, in this sixth chapter, in fact, over and over from chapter 3, there's been an appeal for people to come to faith in Jesus. And I would be backsliding on God to just go through this passage without pointing out that there are some people who just walk away. And some of you may be even in danger of walking away because you've never come in true faith to Jesus and ask him to save you. From your sins. This is so incredibly important. Judas had his opportunity. I still remember Tommy Tillman, who's with the Lord now, standing right here in this pulpit. And one day he said this statement that has stuck with me that I will never forget. He says, Judas, he was the only man who ever kissed the door to heaven 
and died and went to hell. So here you are listening to the sound of my voice as I conclude this section on the bread of life. And I have a question for you today. Have have you received him? Have you believed in him? Have you entrusted everything to his care? Have you asked him to save you? Are you in the church but far from God? Are you pretending God sees right through you? And are you sure that if you died today, are you sure that if you died today, you would go to heaven because you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Or are you uncertain and are you in danger of dying and going to hell? See, Pastor, you preach like, a, like this is a Billy Sunday revival. I wish I had the anointing of Billy Sunday. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Here we are in church. We're all fine-looking folks celebrating Christmas, Christmas trees and lights all around us, singing Christmas carols. We got all the trappings of Christianity, but we have the trust in Jesus that makes all the difference. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Is this just an exercise in religion, or have you placed all of your trust in Jesus today? Do you know him? If you died today, are you confident that your next breath would be in his presence in heaven? You can know it by trusting him.